Hello and welcome to Read All About It, the podcast where people talk about their favourite and not-so-favourite books. Join me, Paul Cuddihy, as I take each guest on the literary journey of their life, from their most cherished childhood read and a book they'd recommend to anyone, to the book they couldn't be paid to read again, and much more in between. So listen, enjoy, subscribe and spread the word about the Read All About It podcast. Hello and welcome to the latest of these Read All About It special extra episodes. And once again, Crystal and I will be chatting about some of our favourite books. And this time the topic is the great American novel. And once again, Chris, we set up these great topics and then it's a real struggle trying to just whittle it down to five books each. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking about the, the whole of American literature. But also that thing, uh, Paul, I kind of wondered at the time, what do we mean by the great American novel? Do you just mean American novels that are great? Or is there something, is there actually a genre, uh, which is the great American novel? And I kind of had it in my head that there were some writers I wouldn't mind talking about, uh, Hemingway, for instance. But I thought, well, no, Hemingway, the ones I really like are either set at sea, The Old Man in the Sea, and the sea or uh, set in Spain during the Spanish Civil War. And I thought, I thought the great American novel had to be about Americans in America and about American life. As it turns out, I think that's what we've both chosen anyway. But yeah, just so many novels to try and pick five from. To be fair, once I looked at the list, I think we've actually done quite a good job. And some of these, I think, would be in any sort of list of, of classic American novels. I think some of them would certainly be right up there. If we go to, to your very first choice of the, the books for today, and that's Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. Absolutely. Um, book about childhood. So, and one of the, I've kind of gone through mine, I think roughly kind of in, in the sequence that they're written in. And I think almost exactly by chance, more than anything else, in the, in the sequence that I read them in. So, Tom Sawyer, I, I can't remember, but I've got a feeling that I first came across Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, because uh, there's two novels uh, by Mark Twain, who's just a genius writer. And Huckleberry Finn, I think, is the one that most people know, actually, but it's the second novel in, in the sequence. I'm pretty sure I saw a dramatised version of this first. I've no memory of where or how it was a TV programme or a film, but I'm pretty sure I had this kind of very definite idea in my head. And I read the books probably a bit later than I should have, probably because Tom and Huck are about 12, 13 at the time of the novels. Um, I was probably a little bit older, I think, when I, when I finally read them. And like a lot of older novels, you know, uh, when are they written? Uh, the, I can't remember, to be honest, when they're written, but uh, they're written about the 1840s. Some of the language can be a wee bit uh, different, but but not that different, actually. And you, you get into them quite quickly, even as, a, even as a kid or a young guy, I get into it quite quickly. And I just love these two guys. Um, I mean, it's only later I found out there's a lot of more political stuff about, you know, racial politics in America and poverty and all that. The time I'd eaten them as a youngster, I just loved the fact these two 12-year-olds smoked pipes. I just loved that. I loved that they dogged school. And I loved that they had this wonderful world around about the Mississippi and then Huckleberry Finn's case all over the South where he travels. And, you know, if you're stuck in your provincial school, this was just so unbelievably romantic. And in the middle of it, there's this big story about a murder that they see. There's something quite, quite kind of uh, Enid Blyton and Famous Five-ish about it. But it is kind of darker than that, the whole thing about, uh, about the murder and the grave robbers and all of that. So now thinking back, it was probably quite dark at the time. But brilliant. And funny as well. Uh, Mark Twain's a very funny writer and these two wonderful characters. It's funny because, and again, I think you and I have spoken about this before, there are certain books that you feel you should have read. And this is certainly one that I feel that I should have read long before now. 
you know, I'm very aware of, obviously, very aware of the, the author and, and the book, and it's something that's in your consciousness, but I've just never actually, I don't even think I've got a copy in the house, actually, but it's certainly a book I, I feel that I should. I obviously haven't read it, but I feel that I should read it. And in some ways, I don't like this thing about should have read books, just read books you like, but in the sense of, I think you would like it. Uh, I think you'd love it, actually. Yeah. Obviously, I've got a couple of couple of copies here, uh, one of which I really like. No, no expensive copy, no, just, uh, just paperbacks, but I just like the... I think one of them actually has the, the original cover, or a reproduction of the original cover, which is just lovely. Oh, it's a copy of the two of them together. Um, so, yeah, that's at last I can get some to swap with, with the, the, the 25 books you're giving me. It's funny, actually, you know, you, we've done a few of these now, and we kind of joke about the, the books that you want to take from me or borrow from me, etc. Once once the lockdown's over, but I actually saw something on Twitter where somebody had said they'd somewhere in America, and, and somebody had actually just left a box of books just outside the front of the building, basically just saying, "Help yourself." I've, I've seen it around here, yeah. So the first one last weekend, and I've seen it, it's, it's become a thing. We, we were uh, Moira and I were out walking a couple of uh, last weekend. And there's a house uh, just along the Broom Hill along the road that's done exactly that, saying these are books we've read, finished with them. And no, all I thought was a really nice touch was they'd also put on top of the box a wee, uh, a wee uh, jar of uh, hand gel <laughs> so you could wash your hands before you took out the book or whatever. Yeah, that's a lovely thing, isn't it? And some and one, one or two scenes since said, take or swap. Um, so, you know, just take a book if you haven't read it. Or you think, oh, you know what, I'll, really, I'll, I'll bring them all bit back. Um, so I thought of doing that. I said, I thought maybe we'll pass by these, these houses I've got them and take some books, or maybe put one outside our house. It's a lovely idea, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is, but keep a copy of Tom Sawyer for me. I will do. I will do. No, 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 <laughs> I'm not giving that away. The first of my choices in this, the Great American Novel podcast, and it is one of my favourite books. It's The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck, and prior to just recording this, I was having a look in my bookshelves to see if I had a copy, but I don't have a copy in the house because it's one of those books that every time, I, I just feel like I keep giving them away because I just want everybody to read it. I just Any time if anybody says to me they haven't read it, I, you have to read it because it's just a, a stunning novel um, set in the 1930s, the Dust Bowl of Oklahoma and that kind of great trek west to, to California in search of jobs and money and a better life and it's so brilliantly written and it does, uh, again I think it's something I've mentioned before on, on a podcast or two, but at the ending of this book it's one of the few books that has really moved me to tears, it's absolutely breathtaking I think and, and I, again as I say I think this is a book as, as you say, you know you read what you want to read but I just think if people read this, they, they couldn't help but love it. I couldn't agree with you more and, and uh, you, you put in your five books before I get mine in so you yeah, haven't dabbed when you're taking a you take Graves of Wrath because I just think um, I just love everything about that book. And like you, I think it's one of the most emotional endings of any novel anywhere, and brilliantly deserved, brilliantly worked up to, completely understandable in every way. I just think Steinbeck is, you know, I'm kind of surprised actually when we did uh, our kind of favourite books before that Steinbeck didn't come up, and this book in particular, uh, because it's one of the books like you have gone back and read several times. I'll, I'll go and see any any adaptation I've ever done. There was a great one, by the way, recently, a couple of years ago, on radio by my friend Donna Francis Child, a fantastic radio ad- adaptation of it. If anybody wants to hear that, I'm sure it'll be on a BBC iPlayer somewhere. Uh, but a, a radio adaptation uh, on Radio Scotland. Phenomenal. Really great. Um, so, yeah, I agree with you. I, I just think Steinbeck is one of the greatest writers I've ever seen. He, he's kind of like, he does something you don't understand. You know, he, he, he writes in quite simple straightforward prose. He doesn't use big words or lots of adverbs or big constructions. He, he writes in kind of muscular, straightforward prose. And yeah, 
He brings to life tiny details. He makes you feel things. I just think, how's he doing that? <laughs> and he's, I just think he's, he's a wonderful artist um, and a brilliantly political about the South and, uh, and about the Great Depression and all that. Phenomenal book. And I think as well, in terms of the, the quality of the writing, it's one of those books where I've, you know, I've read it. Some of the descriptions of even just the food that the, the mother and the family is cooking along the, the road when they're stopping to, to get fed is just, it's mouth-watering. It's so brilliantly described that you actually can, you can taste it and you can, you can smell it. And I don't even have a sense of smell anymore. <laughs> there you go. You know, you're doing fiction, if not in reality. I mean, that's a mark of a great writer, isn't it? That makes you absolutely not like experience them, feel how people feel, and taste what they're eating, smell what they're smelling. And yeah, and Steinbeck's just got it. He's just an extraordinarily brilliant writer. We are on to your next choice of uh, a great American novel, and that is Call of the Wild by Jack London. This is, again, childhood book. It's funny how I, get, I was kind of slightly obsessed with uh, Canada and the Yukon and Alaska when I was a kid. A number of reasons, my, my aunt had been there teaching years before, I think, in the 50s or something. But talked about it a lot, talked about Canada a lot. And I think maybe it was, again, stuff on television that kind of fascinated me, these kind of, you know, mountainous cold areas. But there's another reason that's uh, I loved because of family, friends. Uh, I loved the poetry of Robert Service. I can still do them. Dangerous Dan McGrew. A bunch of the boys were putting it up in the Malamud saloon. The kid that handles the music box was playing a ragtime tune. The back of the barn solo game sat dangerous Dan McGrew, and watching his luck was his life of love. The lady that's known as Lou. Don't worry, I won't go for all 25 verses. <laughs> <laughs> but I loved all this stuff about the Yukon and traders and Kamisha Sam McGee. And then amongst that somewhere, whether I'm pretty sure in, in Partick Library, because I saw there was a book about the Yukon and trails across the, the Yukon, across Canada. And this all fascinated me. And it's the first time I ever read Jack London. So I got it because I like the idea of the book. It's, it's about a, a dog. And it's one of the, the few novels I've ever read, just kind of taken from the dog's point of view, where I thought that's a good idea. Any other time I thought, seriously, don't do that. Uh, but this one really works, actually. And it works brilliantly. And, and uh, he's a collie. Uh, Buck. Buck's a collie. And he's got a pamper collies. And he lives in... Um, in the, sun, in the sunny south, I think, in California. Uh, and then he's stolen and taken uh, to Alaska or to, to the, the Yukon and, and, and forced into a sled and become, become a sled dog where he makes kind of dog friends. Um, so you're getting all this from his point of view about his life and being controlled by these humans all the time. And then finally, he's on a journey with some new people and the journey goes really wrong with their drunkards and stuff like that. And basically, you know, everybody on this trail across Canada, across the Yukon, but dies. And the, the, the dogs begin to eat each other. They're going to eat the dogs, the dogs are going to eat each other. Buck survives. And he kind of goes feral. So he, and he ends up kind of becoming a wolf. He ends up joining a wolf family. And as a kid, I mean, I think I read and reread that book and, you know, just finished it and it went straight back to page one again several times over. That and White Fang, which is another book very similar. This time it's taken more from the dog's owner's point of view, but a not dissimilar story. And I just loved those two books. There was something really kind of primitive and wild about them, uh, particularly as, as Buck gets into the wild. I just went incredibly excited. So, yeah, just two phenomenal books. I mean, are those books, I mean, that Call of the Wild, is that specifically aimed at younger readers? Because, uh, again, it's, it's not a book that I've, I've read. I don't think it is, actually. I think there's one that's, that, that, you know, younger readers appeal or, 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 you know, or, or drawn to. To be honest, I don't know. I, I suspect it wasn't. I suspect it was written as a book. Um, and the chap, 
because not, nothing else in Jack London writes has got a particular kind of youth. He's not he's not right for a young market in any way. Unlike the way I think Mark Twain probably was trying to at least capture that market as well. I don't think so. No, I think I think they're straightforward adult books. And again, I haven't read them for an awful long time. And the thing about doing these these uh, these chats with you is it makes you want to read all these books again. You know, I'd love to read Tom Sawyer again. I'd love to read uh, Call of the Wild again. And my memory also is it's quite short. I've got a version downstairs. I've got a beautiful copy of it. I've picked up copies of it along the way uh, that I really like. And I've got a lovely one downstairs. So actually, that might be a, that might be a weekend project. That's the thing. It's it's always that balance, isn't it, between read reading books that you really love, but then there's also there's always other books that you haven't read, or and if you're reading a book that you've read before, it's taking up time where you could be reading something that you haven't. Exactly. Do you know, I'm reading a book just now. Actually, I'm trying to do this kind of a lockdown thing that people are still working, so we don't actually these things that you've got lots and lots of time in their hands. I'm not particularly finding that, but I'm just sort of using the lockdown period and logging out uh, to to do something. So I'm trying to read uh, Spanish books again, just in Spanish, just keep my language going. So there's one I'm reading just now. Do you ever get that when you get? It's, again, it's quite a short book. It's only about 150 pages long, uh, but I'm at page about 50 odd, and it's only now I've realised I've read this before. <laughs> I got to a certain <laughs> plot point, and I thought, well, "Hang on a minute, I know this story." <laughs> so that's obviously just age. You know, you've forgotten what you've read. The next book that I've chosen is a book called A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole, and again, it's it's got a really brilliant character, and it. it's the story of this slothful guy who lives with his mum called Ignatius J. Riley, uh, set in New Orleans, and he thinks he's better than everyone else. He thinks he's more educated, more articulate than everyone else, but is just a bit of just a bit of a, a lazy guy. And eventually, his, his mum, I think, is fed up and, and pushes him out to try and uh, get some employment, and that is the kind of basis of of his quest, reluctant quest for um, employment, and it's, it's a comedy it's uh he's a brilliant comic character the book itself i think it didn't get published until maybe the late 70s maybe around about 1980 but what happened was john kennedy tool had written it in the 60s but couldn't get it published and for whatever reason he ended up taking his own life and it was actually his mum who then took up the manuscript and basically went around various publishers until she eventually managed to get it published and he was posthumously given the Pulitzer Prize for fiction because of this book, and, and it is considered, I think, a, a classic of, of modern American literature. Read it years and years ago, absolutely loved it. I remember being very funny. It's strange, I can't remember that much about it. Although you don't, nothing I find if you've, if you've read an awful lot of books that you quite often can't remember an awful lot of the plot, but you, you, you remember a certain kind of feeling about it. And, and I remember not people put it down. I remember being, I remember being slightly frightened by it as well, actually. It was, it's quite a full on book. It certainly makes you think. Um, I, I thought it was one of those slightly challenging books that made me kind of double think what I thought about people. I think he, he plays really clever tricks on you by making you think one thing and then you kind of, you, you, something else is revealed and you, you understand something else in a different way. Uh, but I remember absolutely loving it. And it's one of those books, I think, that kind of mid 20th century. When, when was it written, Paul? I think it was written in the, the early 60s, but it wasn't yeah. published about 1980. I was thinking that it's kind of books. And I think the the rest of my books now are actually the, during my lifetime. Uh, it all came out in the 1980s, is that right? Oh, God, that's funny. I just thought it was earlier than that. Because I think, he's, as I say, I think his mum, it took her a few years to finally yeah. get a publisher. Um, I forgot that story. When you said that, I thought, that's right, I've heard that before. Because I think he keeps a kind of a journal that he's trying to write a book within it. But it was interesting when, uh, again, when I was just looking up for the book, and there was one 
foreword for the book that was written by a guy called Walker Percy, and he, he describes Ignatius the character as slob, extraordinary, a mad Oliver Hardy, a fat Don Quixote, a perverse Thomas Aquinas rolled into one. So that's <laughs> that's an incredible description of a character. That's <laughs> why you got to read that again <laughs> with that with that in mind. But again, I think the American novel is quite good at this, isn't it? Having central characters that you're not really too sure about. You, know, you, you, you go with them because you're fascinated by them. You, you, you don't necessarily like uh, a lot of them. Uh, you think quite a lot of update novels, Ross novels, um, you quite often don't like the central character. But you're completely fascinated by them. They, they, they either horrify you or make you laugh or whatever. So I think that's one of those books, very American in that sense. We're on to your third choice, Chris. And I think by any definition this is a, a classic not just of american literature but just of, of literature itself and that's to kill a mockingbird by harper lee against what you said there so many uh, american novels with you know, iffy or questionable um or, or main characters that you can change your mind about a lot or challenge a lot that oh the main character in this book uh, again a lot of times i've read it but a uh, scout it's the daughter that i remember reading this um, but there's atticus finch who is an absolute hero when i read this fairly young um, so, yeah, it's not a bad character. It's, it's, it's got really good people in the centre of, of the, the novel. In fact, there's a lot of good people. They're, they're all kind of slightly, you know, uh, tarnished in one way or another, makes them real, including Atticus. Scouts certainly always get in fights for all the right reasons. There's a wonderful character of Boo Radley, a mystical yeah. character, strange character in the background. You're quite frightened, the kids are frightened of it. Um, Scout and her brother, Jem, yeah, are frightened of, uh, of Boo. And they never really see him. He's, he's almost this kind of, does he really exist? But at the end, he turns out, given in the way, he turns out to be you know, a good guy in, in, in a kind of surprising way, actually. So I think it's it's a book which um, which was actually written in my lifetime, uh, late 50s, early 60s it was written. Um, and the, note, the, the the film came out in sort of mid to late 60s. Yeah, I'm, I'm that, that bit older than you, uh, Paul. So I kind of grew up with television stuff about the civil rights movement and Martin Luther King is quite a big part of my childhood, just watching the, you know, the news and all the stuff about Luther King and the, the civil rights movement. And although the the, the, the action in uh, Killer Mockingbird as early as pre-war, as the 1930s, it felt to me like um, when I read that, it was like reading about America now and about uh, racism in the South uh, and, and all that and the, 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 the horrific injustice against Tom, Tom Robinson, uh, who's accused of uh, false rape. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book. And one of these books that really annoys me. I've heard people criticise it for, from a modern perspective, about not being as, as racially perfect as it could be, and about Atticus not being, being too, all sorts of things. And I, I totally go, oh, you know, get a life, you know. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful book. It's also a funny book, as I remember. It's just, again, kids. These great kids, you just really like Scout. And she's such a kind of a tomboy girl. You just, I just loved her as a kid reading her. Great character and a brilliant unput down ability. I think it's one of those books that, again, it's something that we've touched on in, in previous podcasts, whether it's books or music. Sometimes if, if somebody read that and wasn't impressed or underwhelmed by it, I'm kind of thinking, what is it you've read there? Because, I, again, I think it's such a it's a brilliant story. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there when you said some of it's quite funny because it is told from a child's perspective or, you know, the child's voice. But within underlying that kind of innocence of of a child's voice and, and how they see the world is a really, really dark and, and adult and sinister and horrible themes of, of that time. And, and I think it was the novel set in 1930s United States and, you know, obviously racism 
that the undercurrent is there, obviously, in the, the case that Atticus Finch has is, is taken on. But I think it's it's just one of those books, I think, once you've, you've read it, I don't think anybody could not be completely blown away by it. Absolutely, and I do I do get a wee bit uh, touchy about people criticising it from a, from a 21st century perspective. Uh, but at the time, it was one of the most perfect books, I think, uh, ever. God, it seems to me to so much. It's about, it's about childhood, it's about children growing up and trying to understand what's right and what's wrong, it's about bravery. It's just about so many wonderful things. Uh, so uh, although it does, you know, look at the, this very dark world of American racism in the South, it, it's kind of slightly beautiful as well. So yeah, for me, it's just it's just one of the greatest books ever ever ever. Written. It's also we had our it didn't come up in our discussion about uh, adaptations, but there's a book that's both a great book and a great film, and, and this one is one uh, I'm pretty sure of. I can't remember I saw the film before I read the book. Um, I think I might have read the book before I saw the film, but I don't know. But either way, I don't think it would matter. And did you read the the book that came out not long before she died, Go Set a Watchman? No, I haven't actually. Um, I've got it. I've been to second-hand bookshops. And, yeah, I think I actually got that relatively soon after it came out. It's in a second-hand bookshop, so somebody didn't like it. Uh, but I've never read it. Uh, and I keep meaning to have you, Paul. No, I, I get how like you have got it in the house. But I'm kind of... I think To Kill a Mockingbird is so perfect that I'm I'm not quite sure whether I really want to read anything else about, I'm, I'm about exactly that story. I'm, and, and also some of the views I've read of it, I thought, hmm... Um, I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I want to take the sheen off this this kind of perfect book I've got in my head. And uh, I'll just go back and read. I'm going to spend time reading Harper Lee again. And she's a bit of a salinger, isn't she? Uh, you know, she she wrote this and nothing else. Extraordinary. It was unbelievably brilliant book. So assured and perfect. And then to write virtually nothing else um, until this book came out posthumously. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a feeling like you. I might never get around to reading it. Well, you're listening to the Read All About It podcast, this extra episode on the great American novel with me, Paul Cuddehy and Chris Dolan. And we're on to my next choice, Chris, and it's a book called Underworld by Don DeLillo. You know, when I spoke earlier on about The Grapes of Wrath having one of the best endings to a novel, this, for me, has, has got one of the, the best beginnings to a novel. There's a first section. Basically, it's a kind of story, of, effectively, of the, the latter half of 20th century America. Seems through a baseball. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you know, it's funny because that's the, the starting point. It's October the 3rd, 1951, and there's this whole section. There might be about 100 pages or so of this game, and it was a playoff game between the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers in baseball. And it's a game that became known. A guy, Bobby Thompson, hit uh, what was a three-run homer, which, you know, obviously people know what that means for baseball. So he hits it, the shot, and it's called the shot held, held around the world because around about that time, I'm not sure if it was J. Edgar Hoover or might have been in the, the crowd, but they, they get notification that the Russians had successfully carried out a, a nuclear test. And that's why it was called the, the shot heard around the world, because it kind of coincided with this famous baseball game. And interestingly, Bobby Thompson was actually born in Glasgow. He was born in Townhead. And was it? yeah, he was I think he was three when his family moved over to America and became this uh, you know, obviously a baseball hero. I actually have a friend of mine went to America a few years ago and got me a baseball signed by Bobby Thompson, which I still have in the house. I kinda didn't know that now you mentioned I can I think I didn't know he was Scottish, I didn't know he was two heads, no, was it? Oh no, East End boy. Fantastic. Yeah, and I think the novel, and it goes back and forth, and the baseball keeps appearing at various points, because obviously this is a kind of a mythical, almost a mythical treasure in terms of baseball 
memorabilia because uh, because of the significance of the game in the, in the shop. Because obviously in, in baseball, if you hit the ball into the crowd, it, it never re- unlike football, they don't throw the ball back. So the ball just it, at various times, it, whether it is the actual authentic ball that was hit in 1951. But there's also the way Don DeLeo writes the book. It's there's obviously there's some fictional characters, but there's also J. Edgar Hoover's in it. There's various other Frank Sinatra, Lenny Bruce. There's there's various real life characters that kind of pop up in it as well and it's it's one of those books it's a big chunk of a book to look at and again sometimes i think people see it and see it's quite intimidating but you know once you get into that first part where it's brilliantly descriptive of what it's like to go to, to a sporting event and the, the sounds the smells everything about it you're hooked after that absolutely and i'm, I'm one of those uh, guys who, who first thought god this is this waiting every way it's actually big it's quite close print. You sort of remember first looking through it and oh God, look at that, there's hardly any paragraphs. And I knew it this wonderful reputation that we a few years after coming out and everybody was wondering about how great a book it was. I don't, I, don't, I don't think I'm worthy of this book. I think I'm up to this book. And I'll let you, once you start those, uh, and I, do, I have to say that uh, 15, 20 years after reading it, what I still really, really, really remember is those first 100 pages. I actually remember not as much about after that. But I remember that I just think what a marvelous, phenomenal, incredible way, exciting way to, to start and continue a novel. Just those extraordinary long sequences. So what? They, they never wanted it to end. I think actually that came out. I'm not sure said either afterwards or, or it was written originally that as a novella, and then that became the starting point to the underworld novel. And and it does can and it can stand alone as a novella. That would that would explain a lot actually. Yeah, cause it does a definite standalone, and yeah, the rest of the book. Although that we go back to the ball quite often, and I did really like the rest of the book, and I love all these books that you know that name places and times and historic events and all of that, and then kind of mythologise. I mean, I loved the whole book. I remember just really really liking it. But it's, it's still those first hundred pages that was was most impactful. But the other thing we we've had this conversation a lot of times, and that's writing about sport. And it's like, and I think this might come up again in one of your other um, choices, but. Uh, We've kind of said before, well, why is it that the Americans are good at writing about the sport, whereas the, I think the European, uh, generally not just British, are not that good? It's hard to find that many good novels that have sport. I mean, uh, Underworld's not about sport, uh, but you know, it is at the heart of it, and, it's about the, and, it, and how important it is to American life. And I mean, it's every bit as important to Scottish life here. Yeah, I don't think we've managed to quite encapsulate it in the same way as the Americans do. I remember when Hugh MacDonald was on the podcast and he was saying, Americans look at sport in a different way than certainly they do in, in the UK and it's seen as an integral part of, of the fabric of their society but also it's it's long been where the best writers have gone and he, he would say if there was some big news event broke they would it'd actually be all the sports writers who would be taking off the sports and go and write whether it was a, a political mm. event or a, a court case because they were the best writers and it, it's always been the opposite unfairly a lot of times in the UK certainly, and, and that I think is a an extension of that. Then, you know, novelists of in America have written some really good books based at, around sport, which we just we just don't do by and large here. No, not at all. You think so again? The great American novel, an awful lot of them. You know, uptake in golf, Norman Mailer and boxing. Uh, I mean, so many writers are are very taken by by sport, and again, as you say, is that thing about an integral part of life. I, and I remember you saying that actually in your podcast, I thought it was absolutely fascinating that the sports writers are seen as being the best writers. And that, I think that's probably to some extent true. Hugh, by the way, himself is, is, a, is a living proof of that. I think he's a brilliant writer. 
yeah, they, they don't they don't get the same just the sport doesn't get the same respect, nor do the, the reporters of sport get the same respect as they clearly do in, in the States. So yeah, sure. and that is one reason why I think Underworld is so fabulous actually that is that sport all the way through. And if you're going to read Underworld, even if you if you feel daunted by the, the full book, just read that first section and you will absolutely love it. We are on to your next choice, and it's a book that I remember from when we did the, the original podcast with you. It was a book that you, I'm not sure if you could make up your mind whether you, you loved it or hated it, but it's On the Road by Jack Kerouac. I think I think maybe I can't remember now, it's amazing that you forget these things, uh, was it the book I would never read again? Well, so, it, it started off as, I'm not sure if it was the book that you chose for your formative years, and then it, it was vying with Moby Dick, I think, is the book that you couldn't be paid to read again. I will move it, I can't even read first time round. Still keep trying, I can't do it. And I still hold with that by the way. And I say on and I did I did think of this a lot before putting it in my list on the road. And in a way it's it's kind of emblematic because actually it's it's not the on the road itself. It's the most famous novel of a particular group of writers and a particular era and time that I think should should be kind of celebrated. And for me it's just hugely, hugely important. Can't, I think it's my mate Mick who got me into it. I was possibly just listening to Dylan records and stuff that was around. But anyway, I'd, I'd, I'd heard of the Beat Generation. Possibly it was hearing about Alan Ginsberg through Bob Dylan songs or whatever. But anyway, at some point in my teenage years, I was so obsessed with the Beat Generation. And I just read everything and quite often several times over. And from where I'm sitting here, like a bookcase just in front of me, I'm, I'm so proud of it. I'm, I'm not a collector. I don't collect anything. Apart from Beat Generation books, and I've got a really, really good <laughs> selection. So, on the road, first of all, um, Jack Kerouac was written the year I was born, 1957. It's about a kind of emerging America after all the stuff we've been talking about, you know, the Great Depression, the Dust Bowl, and the, the, the problems of the South and all that. In a way, in the 1950s, it's kind of even getting towards the 1960s as jazz has come to, to, to life and there's more freedom in the air. And basically, uh, on the road is two guys, uh, Sal Paradise and Neil Moriarty. Sal Paradise is actually uh, Jack Kerouac. Neil Moriarty is a guy called Neil Cassidy, who's kind of the muse of all the beats. He's everywhere as this kind of young rebel guy. He's a bit of a James Dean type figure. But James Dean himself kind of half-based himself on Neil Cassidy. Cassidy himself becomes a writer. Not a very good one, but he writes himself. And these two guys, there's not to say that they're really two guys bum across America. Nothing much happens, to be honest. They hear some music, they take some drugs, they do a lot of drinking, they meet some women. But I was reading it in my teens, I was like, wow, that's what it means, these guys just bumming about America. And it's written in a kind of a breathless style. Stuff that uh, Kerouac called spontaneous prose. He claimed, I don't quite believe him, but he claimed that he never rewrote um, great chunks of his writing. He just, he just let it all come out with jazz improvisation. Whether it's true or not, I don't know. It kind of makes it slightly unreadable for a second time. But I think actually it's, I say it's emblematic of a whole number of other books. Now, I think there's other books that are actually better books, um, and more readable books, particularly Dharma Bums, which I loved. Dharma Bums, Desolation Angels, Big Sewer is a great book. They're all kind of roughly the same. They're all kind of guys opting out of, uh, of ordinary life and kind of bumming around different parts of America, but they, they're, they're, they're not quite as written in those kind of long sentences and kind of uh, spontaneous prose as much as, uh, as on the road. So they're kind of more readable. They're kind of funny at times. But then it's not just even Kerouac, it's all the writers that uh, came around that time. Ginsberg and Howells, one of my favourite books now. Got an important book to me, a uh, book of poems, or book, one long poem. Naked Lunch by Burroughs, there's Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who opens up the, the City Lights bookshop in, uh, in San Francisco. 
Greg Corso. Just there's just all this whole gang of writers, and I, and I just completely not really loved them all. It was dead exciting. I read it in my twenties, I think, and I think it was at the time, you know, very aware of of the book and the fact it's one of those books you should read or say you've read and. I read it and I don't remember it leaving an, an impression on me one way or the other. I think it was just one of those books that I read. I didn't dislike it, but it didn't blow me away. And I kind of, you know, I knew I was never going to read it again. I, but also, I think because sometimes, in other ways, sometimes it can be difficult if you read a book that is considered to be a great book and you just don't like it. And then you're thinking, did I just say, nah, it's not really for me? Or do you just keep your opinions to yourself? But it just kind of just left me cold. I think it was... For me, I, I don't know whether it was just at the time I read it or the age, but it was neither. It didn't make a, an impression one way or the other on me. It does have that kind of amazement, but one of the things I quite liked about it, uh, and you know, I'm honestly convinced I will never read it again. I might read parts of it again and dip into it every then, but I'll never read it cover to cover again, I doubt. Um, but it's got that kind of mesmerising quality, almost like it's a jazz beacon through it. Not much as happens, just words instead of notes. And I kind of. I think it's one of those books that I think you're probably best reading it before you're at least 24 or something about 25. Probably best actually in your teens. Because it is about rebels and it is about, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of a experimental book and you, and you do feel very clever from reading it. And I thought it was very clever reading it when I was 17 or 18. So there's all that to it. But what I think is a bit of a shame, Paul, is it stops maybe if you didn't like On the Road, that stops you from reading other Kerouacs or reading other Beat Generation. And I think that's a bit of a shame that it's, it's kind of great American novel status in a way stops people if they don't like it. And I think you should just say don't like it. And I know lots of people don't like it. I know lots of people start to say just can't be bothered with it at all. But maybe try something. So I keep telling people, you want to try Beach and should try someone else. You know, go into the, the, the poetry of Ginsburg, which is funny and wild and crazy and unbelievable. You know, totally how amazing piece of writing. Or, or read one of Kerouac's other novels. Read, uh, read, uh, Big Sewer or, uh, Dharma Bums, you know, um, that's all a bit more kind of hippie and stuff like that, and they're not written quite in, in that experimental way. So I would still say at some point, you, if you fancy, try someone else by Kerouac or by another Beat Generation writer. We are on to my fourth choice, and it's a book by Richard Ford called The Sports Writer. And again, it's a, it's a book I absolutely love. I actually just picked it up out of a bookshop, simply because of the, the title. The fact Being a sports writer yourself? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, that's what caught my eye. But it's the first of, well, there's a trilogy and then there's a kind of a shorter book of, of short stories concerning the main character, who's Frank Bascom. And he, in the novel, he is a sports writer at the time. He had been an aspiring novelist. He'd published one novel that had, you know, been relatively well received. But then one of his, I think it's his, his oldest son, had died. And that obviously had a catastrophic effect on his marriage. It split up with his wife, um, who's with her other kids, and he goes through a series of jobs, and he's and it's a novel about about him, his relationship with his his family, his kids. He's got a kind of developing relationship with a, another woman, and the, the kind of sports writing is just what he does, but it's not central to who he, who he is. And it's just a he's such a brilliant character, and he's subsequently gone on to write uh, Independence Day, which is a again a sports as an element of that where he goes on a road trip with his son to the Baseball Hall of Fame to tie in with Independence Day, and then layer the land. But it's also at different stages of Frank Bascom's life, which is a reflection of him as a a man in, in America. He's getting older, but also what's happening to the country as well. And I just love the books, and I went to see. Richard Ford, I can't remember if it was when Lay of the Land came out, reading at the Edinburgh Festival, and uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of his work. I think you introduced me to him. Uh, I think I'd actually seen him 
of course, at the same time, we should have these anti-Edinburgh festival. I remember going to see him because I was just involved in the festival at the time. Maybe some of the ticker was allowed to speak in the back or whatever. I remember thinking he was, he was excellent, but I'd never read anything. Uh, and it was you that first told me about the sports writer. Uh, and, and, and I was slightly surprised by it. Uh, I got to you gave me, I can't remember. And it was different than I expected because there's not really an awful lot of sport writing in it. And I thought in some ways, for the very same reasons that you dislike uh, Kerouac, it's one of the reasons why maybe like this book, because I do think it's got that thing that a lot of that great American novel has. And it's it's kind of about lives that just kind of meander along, but they meander alongside history um, and what's happening in the world and about them. But you, I loved it. I found it slightly mesmerising. I, I wasn't quite sure why at the end of it. It's that same thing I think that Roth and Updike have as well. It's just something kind of, they create great ordinary characters, flawed characters here. You just kind of feel you know um, and you have to go with so I, yeah, I loved that book, Paul. Um, I thought it was really interesting. Um, and very much about kind of being a middle class guy in America and trying to hold it all together. But with some really nice stuff about sport in it. It's interesting. Uh, and again, I've, I've seen a few interviews with Richard Ford, and he's obviously the, the trilogy of, of novels. And then he, he wrote latterly, maybe about three or four years ago, a book called Let Me Be Frank with You. And it was a series of short stories where Frank just telling the story of Frank Bascom again. And he, he says, although he, he He's one of these guys, he doesn't have a plan to necessarily go back and write another novel, but he, he, it's a character that's always in his head, so he's always maybe writing notes or writing smaller stories, which is where this collection came from. And it's just, again, it's it's been able to tell the story of America to an extent, or a certain part of America, through the eyes of this guy and how things have changed and how his relationships have changed. And once I was hooked on the sports writer, that was me, and, and I couldn't wait to, to read the other books as well. We are on to the last of your books, and again, it's a it's a absolutely stunning, beautiful, moving book called Beloved by Tony Morrison. Yeah, uh, and one thing to say first of all about this is there's only one of two out of mine, I think. So out of the ten books, there's only two female writers: Harper Lee, Tony Morrison's any years women, no guys. The the last one, the last choice of mine is going to be a, is a female writer. Because it's interesting, I do think that kind of that idea of the big muscular uh, American novel does typically male. Uh, I mean, on the road, for instance, for, for all of being kind of new and freaky and hippie and beat generation, drug and all that, actually, is such a boys book. Two guys out in the road, they're pretty sexist in a lot, of, in a lot of different parts and stuff like that. So it's interesting that that you know women are are, are found it hard to break through uh, into this great American novel and I'm sure actually those novels are out there but they're not kind of the ones that we know about uh, so we should go do a bit of research and find out who else has been writing apart from Tony Morrison um, and Harper Lee and Joyce Carol Oates a few others that we know of who are the writers so yeah Beloved um, one sense without a doubt I think probably the darkest of all the books I've chosen um, I mean there's a very dark book of his heart yet again uh, Morrison manages to make you confront a darkness with a kind of beauty of prose and a beauty of characterization that you know she just carries you with you and, and makes you face up to stuff. So yeah, it's set after the American Civil Civil War. It's been before emancipation. It's set in the late sixties, early eighteen seventies. It's based on a true story, apparently. But I don't know much about that. The lead characters probably is it Seth or is it beloved? There's a woman Seth who's who's escaped with her family, but she has all these terrible dreams about her dead daughter. It takes a long time before you find out what these dreams are really about. This kind of girl that's never really explained where she comes from, just called Beloved, turns up, this beautiful young uh, woman turns up and kind of befriends the family in various different ways. And Seth begins to believe that it's that she is, she is actually the reincarnation or she, she is actually the daughter that we now discover. Well, actually, I won't give away because if you haven't read the book, there's a really dark history behind it. 
But it's all got to do with slavery and what slavery does to you and what it does to your family and, and the horror of slavery. It's, it's just one of the most remarkable books. But there's other Tony Morrison ones. Blue Eyes, uh, there's a couple of other ones. I've read a few of Tony Morrison. I think they're all fantastic. Paradise was the other one. Paradise, yeah, great, great book. They're, they're all terrific books. Uh, and they're all incredibly beautiful, I think. And just, it's another story that we've never really heard. And it's a, it's a, the black experience, uh, and particularly a, a female black experience of of American, the brutality of American history. Um, and it's a wonderful book. You know, it was interesting. I was recently recording another uh, Read All About It podcast episode, and someone chose as one of their books, it was uh, Muhammad Ali's Autobiography, The Greatest, which came out in 1975. So and I was doing a wee bit of research for it. It turned out that it was Toni Morrison who had edited that book, and she at the time was working for Random House. She was actually the first black woman who was appointed senior editor in the fiction department, and she edited his book. And, and when the guy who had chosen the book, even before I told him that, he'd said it was so, it was obviously in Muhammad Ali's voice, but he said it was so brilliantly written. And when I said to him, I said, it's no coincidence that, you know, she's a fantastic writer in her own right, but obviously he was able to edit that into something that obviously captivated him. That's extraordinary. I didn't know that either. And I've never read that book. I would love to read that book. So that book came out, the Muhammad Ali book came out in 1975. So she, Toni Morrison at the time, was obviously editing, but she would have aspirations to publish her own book. Beloved came out in 1987. So you wonder at what point she was working on it. And I, I, again, I've read Paradise as, as well, but I, she's another one. When you read read those books, and in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, right, I need to read more of her books because I just think the she's one of those writers, when I, when I read that book, I just knew she was on a level that was way beyond anything that I was ever going to be able to achieve, no matter how hard I tried. Yeah, she's extraordinary. Again, she's a bit like Steinbeck, in a very different way. But again, she she does some kind of magic with her prose. You know, she does things which I think, I don't know how she's achieved that. All I know is it's, it's kind of like listening to music, her prose, I think. There's something yeah. incredibly beautiful about it. Even when you're you're being confronted with really dark stuff, there's some just unbelievably beautiful by the way she writes. So yeah, and it is like, I don't even know how it was done, let alone try and do it myself. And we're on to the last book on this Great American Novel podcast, and this is my last choice, and it's Breathing Lessons by Ann Tyler. I'm a massive fan of Ann Tyler. When I've been going through my bookshelves, I've realised I've got about at least at least a dozen of her novels, if not more, and I've read them all. And I first you know, came to Ann Tyler through, it was Nick Hornby I read. I was a big fan of Nick Hornby you know, Fever Pitch, High Fidelity, etc. And I remember reading an interview with him and he cited her as, as one of his favourite writers and that's what brought me to it. And the reason I chose Breathing Lessons was because that was the first Anne Tyler novel that I read. And the basic premise of the story is basically the, the life of a woman who is, she's almost 50, she's been married for about 20 years, she's got a son and her and her husband. They're going from Baltimore, all Anne Tyler's novels. She's from Baltimore. All her novels are based in Baltimore. Or that's the central location. And uh, the two main characters are going, it's effectively a road trip, going from Baltimore to another town to attend it's the funeral of the woman's best friend's husband. You know, effectively, it's a kind of road trip, but it's the characters are so brilliantly drawn. It's the story of them, their relationship, their marriage over many years. And at the time, sometimes, you know, you, you read books and, Effectively, you're saying not a lot happens, but actually it's so engrossing that, that there is so much going on. And I got to the end of the book and I thought, she's just, in terms of writing about everyday life and relationships and characters, she's absolutely brilliant. And as I say, I've I've read so much of her, her work and I absolutely love Ann Tyler's work. 
Well, there's a total of a, a couple of writers that uh, you feel as if you ought to have read and never have. I, I don't know if I've ever read. I don't, I can actually see where I'm sitting. Uh, I've got The Accidental Tourist. But I That's don't another, I, I mean, obviously that, that was turned into a film. I can't remember who played William Hurt, maybe played the, the, the main character. That's, That's right, a really did. good book yeah. as well. What I think you would like about Breeding Lessons is, because I remember you, and I've subsequently read it, Bernard McClafferty wrote uh, Midwinter Break, and although I think the characters in Bernard's book are, are older than the characters in Breathing Lessons, it's the same idea of a couple and a, a long-term marriage and, and that analysis of it within the novel, and, and it kind of really resonates with you, and I think I think you would really like Breathing Lessons. It's just one of these writers that I do really feel, as if, and it's one of those ones that, I do feel slightly embarrassed not having read because it does sound like everybody I know that talks about her and I've never ever heard of her and seen that film and, and I'd say I've got the book on, I'm pretty sure I've never read it. Yeah, I think I, I should have been reading that woman. So yeah, I think that's, I think that might be one for, for definitely Tom of reading old books, but maybe actually getting to the end of this and, and, and finding a new writer because um, I don't think I've ever read her at all. And she's written a lot, isn't she? I think at the time, Breathing Lessons, that came out in 1989, and it won the won the Pulitzer Prize. I think at the time, that was that was maybe an 11th novel. And she's right. I think she's now, she's published about 22 novels, and they're so brilliantly written. And I think sometimes, you, you touched on it in terms of the great American novel, and it's mostly male novelists, and I think sometimes she maybe gets overlooked, partly because, you know, there's not the grand novel set within the, the wider politics of the United States that maybe some of those other novels are but I think within a kind of analysis of individuals and relationships within that I think there's a few people that do it better I'm going to, I think I might just get, take that book out and, and read it. Well, it's not when you mentioned it I think I'd, I'd quite like to start with that one you've really, you've really got me going that I really fancy uh, breathing lessons I want to start with but the one I've got here is Accidental Tourist I may, I may actually just see if I can get a hold of breathing lessons first the Accidental Tourist is actually, again, the, the film's quite good, but the, the book is really, really good. It's, uh, it's a really great premise to the book as well. I think, I think even if you, if you started that one, I'm, sh- I'm sure you would enjoy that too. Brilliant. Okay, well, I'll, I think I'll try and see if I can get a reading lesson from somewhere. Well, go ahead. Excellent. Yeah, again, a huge bunch of uh, books to read. <laughs> Uh, just have to fit it around all these podcasts. And also both of us trying to write the great, great Scottish novel. <laughs> exactly. Listen, it's been uh, some more good book chat, Chris, as always, and uh, no doubt we'll we'll meet up again and uh, with another topic to, to choose so. some of our favourite books. As we highlight the week, Paul, look forward to every week. It's always brilliant. It's always nice thinking about it beforehand as well. Trying, oh, great American, what, what are my favourite American novels? And so I love all that. It's, it's, it's been it's been it's been great fun. So let's see if we can come up with something else. Thanks for listening to the Read All About It podcast, and I'd love to hear what you thought about it. You can get in touch via Twitter at ReadAllAbout20, on Instagram at ReadAllAboutItPodcast, or you can send an email to ReadAllAboutIt at paulcuddehy.com. If you've enjoyed the podcast, subscribe, leave a review and spread the word. If you haven't enjoyed it, say nothing to anybody. But I do hope you can join me, Paul Cuddehy, next time on the Read All About It podcast. And in the meantime, keep reading.